Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. So I'm talking to Dave Bedini, who is the only person to have been nominated for a Gemini, Genie, and a Juno Award, and have a book featured for CBC's Canada Reads. He's a founder member of Rio Statics and the Bedini Band. He's written at least 13 books, uh, has a three-time National Magazine Award winner, and he's a publisher of the West End Phoenix Community Newspaper in Toronto. And you can subscribe outside of Toronto also, I understand, to the West End Phoenix. Is that right? That's correct. And so that's something that's definitely uh, worth, you know, your time doing if, uh, you know, you're stuck at home and need something to read in particular. You know, uh, can I just maybe start with asking you, like, how you started the Western Phoenix, like what is it that kind of got you moving in that direction to starting a community newspaper? Yeah, and you just mentioned about, you know, like subscribing and not being in Toronto with Miriam Taves is in our latest issue and oh, wow. along with Kevin Barry, the great Irish writer. Um, uh, a lot of different writers um, beyond those that live in the neighborhood uh, writing about things other than the neighborhood. But um, yeah, no, I was reading the Yellowknifer, which was uh, which is the community city newspaper. Yellowknife Northwest Territories last book was based around those experiences, and I kind of, um, you know, I had this, uh, a bit of a light turned on for me just in terms of reporting and local news, local journalism, community journalism, and what you know, and the importance of that paper to that that city. And then um, coming back from that experience, writing the book and being in Toronto, and just sort of you know every uh, you know the conversation about media largely where where we are is about its you know, based upon its demise and also becoming aware of the fact that um, all of the community newspapers that I remember from growing up in the city had, um, you know, either disappeared or have been bought by Metroland, the Toronto Star Parent Company, to basically devoured of all content and all heart. Places like the Park de Liberty and the, the Blue West Villager, which were, you know, a substantial long-standing community newspapers. Anyways, there was, they weren't, None of them were left. They weren't around. They do exist. Um, the villager exists in a, in a depleted form. But I thought it was a you know an opportunity to try something in this neighborhood in, in the West End part of Toronto, and, and just um, gave me an idea of sort of reimagining the community newspaper um, as it could exist in 2018, and. Uh, and yeah, so but it directly it directly goes from my experiences being around the writers and reporters up north, and um, you know getting close to that operation opera, operation that I was inspired to do this. That kind of community news uh, publication, and, and and I think it's also really important for writers in terms of building a writing career. I mean, I know that totally kind of coming up. Like one of the most important things to me as a young writer was working on a student newspaper and then moving on from that, I directly got uh, hired to do a column off 
like to take McCallum into a community newspaper, the Uptown Magazine here in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. which was later bought by the Free Press, uh, you know, which is still an independent publication, the Winnipeg Free Press, but you know, it's not quite the conglomeration that the Metro has become, but but it's still, you know, it's a bit of that trend of, you know, things being absorbed into larger things. But it is something that I think some writers themselves suffer a little bit from, is that the lack of that venue that maybe is somewhat more accessible, but still very um, professional uh, and still a valuable place to be working. Yeah, the, you know, in the book I argue, um, you know, there's, the Yellow Knife was imperfect, um, there's a lot of lot of things that I think could be done to probably um, just make it make it more relevant, um, both to their city and community, and just also um, just as a, a global or and a national voice of the north. But uh, one of the great things about it is it, it's it's um it's it's an available and accessible starter position for people at a J school, and we've seen you know so many so many small town newspapers community newspapers close it's been a media genocide in a lot of ways um and those those early places for people to cut their teeth and to learn how to work and learn how to write and learn how to be working journalists just they're fewer and fewer these days and that's if for no other reason that's an important important you know um use of of journalism at at that level, you know, and everybody has to come from somewhere, you know, and you don't step into your, you know, you don't become a crime reporter at the Toronto star, or the, you know, Montreal Gazette, um, you know, your first, first time around, you have to kind of move through and you have to learn those skills. So that's, that's valuable. And also even for us with the, the Phoenix, you know, um, one of the things I've seen, you know, in my life as a writer, really the last, 15 years is um, the, 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 the dearth of work. You know, there was a time when, you know, there was, there were so many different, you know, um, you know, venues, forums for one's work, you know, uh, and a lot, a lot of those calls came from newspapers across the country asking me to write op-eds and stuff about national concerns generally or if the story was about Toronto and those, this, the calls just don't come anymore because, you know, newsrooms have been gutted. The, the Gazette, I mentioned it, you know, I think they had a, five years ago, they had a, you know, a, a repertorial force of 241, and I think now they're down to 20. So you, you sort of, we've seen the hemorrhaging and, and we've seen how, you know, there are fewer and fewer opportunities for everyone, not necessarily, not even just people that are starting, but also established writers too. Now, one of the things that I think is, so this really starts to connect to a larger, kind of broader thing that I want to talk about, which is um, one of the things that I think is interesting about you and about people who, you know, do different things, you know, who's works in, you know, nonfiction as a writer, and, uh, you know, as a musician and, you know, publishing and so on. I really feel like there's a tendency in kind of modern age, on one hand, for people to want to pigeonhole you, but at the same time for that to be unsustainable uh, from, you know, in, in various respects. And I, I think not you specifically, but, you know, artists or writers in general. And I think one thing that's interesting uh, to me about kind of somebody who's, you know, kind of deep into career like you are uh, and still, you know, kind of really working and turning things out is you found, I think, certain ways to, you know, blend and cross over um, between these different things that you do, the most obvious being, of course, you know, writing uh, 
your book on a cold road about you know sort of touring with the real with real statics. Um, but I, even more broadly, I think there's a sort of um, cons- there's a way in which, as a lyricist, um, you dealt very you know frequently and you know deeply with political and social issues, and so. <laughs> Uh, and this is a very hard thing, I think, to to write about in uh, artistic fields in many respects um, without, you know, I, I think one thing that's kind of interesting about your work is, is I think, in many respects, successfully um, touched very specifically on particular things that were happening. Like, for example, you know, the, you know I think a you know, bad time to be poor from Rio Statics and that um, Mike Harris period or the, even like the motherland album which in many you know, certain songs are really tied to like harper's america which you know bedini band and i mm-hmm. think about like just the way that like it's it's those works still have aged well in a way that a lot of uh material that like, gets really specifically tied to political or social issues doesn't necessarily age well and i always wonder like how do you tackle when you want to talk to a kind of specific issue or something that's kind of very much, you know, current, how do you kind of uh, approach that in a way where, you know, the work's going to hold up or do you think too much about that or what do you, do you have any strategies in terms of dealing with that? I know that's kind of a big set of questions nestled together there, but I'm just curious to kind of dive into that issue with you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's my, my sense of that, um, you know, the, uh, the intent of the work or the inspiration behind, you know, some of the harder, harder edged works, um, you know, songs and, and books too. But I think Muslim music has sort of changed. I think, I think in, in the beginning it was, you know, being sort of, um, you know, children of punk rock and, um, even honestly, like bands that wouldn't even been, have been defined as being punk, but would have, you know, played with all of that heart, uh, spirit, energy, and conviction, even you know, like a new wave, you know, certain new wave band. And, um, you know, when you literally, you know, when you saw that those first wave of bands come over, um, you know, from from the UK, um, a, you know, a few up from the States and even some at home here, they were, you know, they were playing as if they were, you know, playing for their lives, really, you know, and um, playing for Mercy almost. And, and there was, you know, there was just something really beautiful, and I think something that informed uh, our, our aesthetic and our approach. Um, you know, from that, it, the bands that we loved weren't weren't lazy; they were trying hard all the time, and often at the expense of, the, you know, the other choice that you would make, which would have been to kind of pursue that kind of soft level of success that that um, a lot of people have. It's a trade-off, you know. And I think what you find in Canada, because, you know, there are so few opportunities, there are so kind of few slots, really, for those that, you know, um, achieve a level of commercial success that once you find it, you want to sustain it. And, and the way you become more appealing as a commercial entity is large, in Canada, and I think a lot of the world, is largely by being safe and by not asking those hard questions of, you know, your, of humanity and, and of the world as it exists and kind of turning away from the stronger flavors and, you know, choosing kind of sweet 
over sour and, and, um, you know, we there are moments where we sort of flirted with that kind of success, and it's fine for others, but it, which is never fine for us. And we always felt it was a little bit of a betrayal. So whenever there were questions about, well, you know, maybe we pare down the band to one singer, you know, or we, maybe we play sort of more, uh, you know, less formless live performances, less improvis- improvisational. Um, maybe we kind of tailor them. Um, so that they make a little bit more sense to an audience that wouldn't have been exposed to us before. You know, we just decided to not, you know, not uh, heed, you know, that that advice and direction. I think it cost us, you know, a certain uh, level of comfort, perhaps, and and, um, and income and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, for me personally, what it did is it did sort of, it sort of, forced me to kind of figure out a way to be a surviving artist. And, and one of the ways that um, I think, I think this is true of most people in, in our band is we just realized that we had to do other things to kind of support that, um, that, that way of approaching um, our music. And for me, it was writing in the beginning, you know, and, and um, like I, you know, 92, 93, we were touring hard, you know, our, our third record, Whale Music, we toured that hard, and I was writing a column for the Toronto Star at the same time. And that column, you know, eventually did produce on a cold road. And um, I also felt, felt as well, you know, even going back to high school, there was always that, you know, I'm sure kids get today still the whole, you know, like find an occupation, like you do that, you know, that those occupational um, surveys, right? And they tell you to be a, you know, a farmer or a doctor or an accountant or whatever. And, and, uh, but I would never felt made, I didn't understand why you only ever had to do one thing. So, um, you know, so I, I was, I was uh, comfortable and it was, you know, that in a way was also kind of an act of social defiance, like trying to do a lot of things well. And, and, um, and just because, we were who we were as a band. It drove me to explore all those other, other means of expression and just ways of kind of supporting what we do. So, and it does, it makes, if anything, it, it, it makes for really, you know, um, like live, like a lively existence, I think partly. And, it, and one of the things the band did is it did, a, it did give me access to those other, um, you know, those other mediums. So if I, you know, wanted to write a play or if I was interested in you know, writing a book or you know, contributing to a newspaper or something like that. I, at least I had the band as kind of the signifier. So people knew, oh, it's that guy from the Reaesthetic. Okay, I like them, blah, 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 blah. They seem like good guys. And, and I think even with West End Phoenix, um, you know, just in terms of talking, uh, you know, donors and supporters, people kind of knew, had a sense that we would be able to sustain what we were doing because, you know, I've been able to run a really weird band for the past 40 years and one that sort of has continued to survive. So, uh, it's 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 a model that you know probably is, I'm sure isn't for everybody, but it's one that we've been able to fashion for ourselves that we kind of like we like writing in. And when you are trying to get more, when you're writing more specifically in that kind of political or social mode, um, what are the things you think are important to consider, or is there something that's important to consider? Like I think about now, I see so many people talking now about like how are we going to write about this experience of being, you know, of the coronavirus, of dealing with, you know, all this COVID uh, chaos. And you see, you know, people um, on various sides of the fence about whether, you know, it's possible, whether it should be done, whether it has to be done, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, with, you know, obviously like there's no one answer to these sorts of things, but, you know, if say, for example, you're going to take any political or social issue and try to like, you know, work, write about it, you know, write a song about it, for example, or if you just write about it, um, you know, in fiction or as a, in a nonfiction, what are the things you think a writer or person kind of tackling that has to consider? You know, it's funny because I, if, if I, you know, for instance, if, if I was to, I think about writing about America, you know, right now, mm-hmm. where they're at politically and socially and, and everything that's going on, you know, with, you know, uh, with uh, COVID-19 as its focus, um, I, it, for me, it would almost be redundant because I feel like we've written those songs already anyways. And it didn't take, it didn't take Donald Trump and it didn't take the virus to come along for us to suddenly realize, oh shit, you know, this is the road down, uh, you know, down uh, uh, the road that, you know, that country and that culture is, is headed because the signs have been there for a long time. You know, we wrote Rock Death America as a song on We All Music and Marginalized is another good example from 2067, a song about America. Um, so, um, yeah, but it's also, yeah, when you're writing a political, uh, politically focused song or a, you know, one that's even kind of slyly political, not, not, you know, um, obvious, obviously political, uh, brazenly political. You just, you know, you have to be, you kind of check your didactic meter a little bit. Like I always find that, you know, storytelling can always go a long way towards, um, you know, just, uh, uh, giving kind of depth to that, to, 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 the, to, to a political, you know, approach to a song. Uh, two examples, I guess. One is, um, you know, Feel, Feed Yourself was a song on Blue Hysteria, which is about, um, a rape, um, in a park. Um, and, uh, it's back, it's, the, the backdrop is Mike Harris's Ontario, just in the way that, um, the public reacts and, and, um, you know, the way I write about just the way the community reacts to, um, to the event. And, you know, that's one example. And then there are other just like protest songs. And I think Bad Times Are Poor is kind of like that. Tim also wrote a song called Hands Off Our Schools, which we didn't release, but we recorded, which was, so sometimes it is like a finger to the chest, you know, um, and other times it's a little bit, you know, more painter, painterly, I think. You know, even Horses from Melville, which is about the Gainers meat packer plant strike um, in 1986, I think, in, in Edmonton. Um, is more lyrical, I think, as opposed to kind of just a strict kind of protest song. But it's clear, you know, it's clear the impulse, the, the, the impulse of that song and the, the heart of that song is obvious. It's just kind of, you know, the, it's set up, it's dressed up as a bit more of a kind of a, a like a playhouse of humanity rather than a very direct kind of slogan, sloganish political song, which is, which has its place too. I just think you can do it a lot of different ways. On your new newer album, "Here Come the Wolves," the song "Music is a Message," you know, which I think is really interesting because in many ways the lyrics of that song are about writing lyrics to a song yeah. uh, in a certain sense. And you've got that great line of "Music is a message." The words all fly away, and I think there's a way in which uh, would you say there's a way in which, in some respects, that's sort of what's going to carry um, these songs through the ages. In a manner of speaking, whatever they have to be about, you know, yeah. music is still hitting. That's interesting. I think that's true. I mean, I think it has to be a combination, probably, right? Like, you need the melody and the structure of the song to support what you're trying to say. For sure. And the best 
compositions probably have have both of have both of those things. How do you find writing song lyrics being different from other types of writing? Um, well, they're, they're probably easier, honestly. I mean, you know, like they have they have their own challenges because, like a poem, I suppose you the lyrics are spare, and you know you have to be really exact. But then, you know, like a book takes takes me two years to write, sometimes longer. You know, a, a lyric can be can be can be hacked out in an afternoon. So, and also even with poetry, you know, people like to. You know, when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize, you know, people like to talk about him being a poet. Well, I, I think, you know, I think the the the, the poem is it's, it's extremely jealous of the lyric because the lyric has music to you know ferry it through, whereas the poem is stark. Make it's much harder, I think, to write a great poem than it is to write a great lyric. Um, but I, um, sorry, I joke, I joke often that my career has been a regression of sorts because I, you know, I, I was doing music uh, years and years ago. I brief, you know, I was, you know, never had that much success, although I weirdly and randomly had my photo in Rolling Stone. But then I moved from that into writing poetry and moving from that into writing, you know, fiction now, just getting right. harder and harder with less and less rewards. Right. Well, it's different, you know, it really is. Yeah. It's a, man, you know, um, one is, uh, yeah, this, the the long form, you know, the book is a, uh, you know, it's like the Olympics, you know, swimming, you know, they have those, you know, 15,000 meter races or whatever, and they go on for not hours and hours, but it seems like it, and then you've got, you know, one length of the pool, so um, you're spending more time in the water and one and less time in the water than others. And I must say, there's so songs, you know, with um, well, Feed Yourself is a good example, but even Stolen Car, you know, those songs lyrically for me took a long time to write. Um, and I think in the case of Stolen Car, it was, um, I knew the song was, there was something really lovely and special there, but so I wanted to honor the, um, the musical composition by writing a lyric that was equal to it, I think, and that it took a while to come there. So, so, you know, so I, I guess it's easy for me to say those things about spending longer time in the water, but in fact, it can be, it can be the same. No matter what you're doing, you also seem to me to be picking from time to time very hard subjects to write about, like uh, hockey, for example. You write a lot about hockey, which that, to me it seems like a difficult thing to do. Um, I don't know if that's uh, the case exactly, but like to me, it's, 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 sports is one of those areas where it's kind of an ineffable thing they're trying to describe on some level. It could, yeah, it depends. I think it, it, listen, so much of it is like. The, is the angle that you decide to, you know, come, you know, appro- approach it, um, you know, uh, it, and that's the fun part, honestly, is like, okay, I have a subject I want to write about, but really, you know, it's sort of finally calibrating that angle, you know, almost like a set of, you know, a mathematician's tools, right? Like moving it around. So it just comes at it like with, you know, uh, we all music has a song on it called Queer, which is about, um, uh, a, a younger brother, uh, writing to his older brother who's come out to his family that's had to leave uh, the home and, um, has split. So he's writing, he's writing to him to tell, tell him about what life is like with, with their dad. And I, I knew I, I had that sort of narrative and I thought, well, how can I, what, how can I set this narrative? And I decided to set it 
um, against a hockey game where the younger brother um, seeks a kind of retribution on his behalf by the other team that's, you know, uh, like calling his, his older brother a fag and this stuff, and he decides to exact vengeance by almost single-handedly beating this team. And, um, it was useful to kind of, you know, use the game like that as opposed to, you know, um, yeah, it could have been done a lot of different ways, but it was it was nice to be able to kind of write about hockey, uh, but making that song about more than hockey, right? Which I think the best kind of sports writing is probably like that anyway. So, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's it's part of creativity. I mean, it's hard work and stuff to get it where you want it, where it to be. But the fun part for me is the play. I guess is to move things around and, and, and play with ideas and, and trying to turn ideas upside down and put them on their side and see if you can find something new in that. Now, before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what it was like to tour with the Tragically Hip and hear uh, one of the moments I imagine must have been pretty you know, fascinating. I'm curious to know what, what it was like to be sitting there when uh, Gord Downing starts singing Bad Time to Report in the middle of Nautical Disaster. Yeah, he did. We played before with them and he did a little bit of Claire in, um, in one of the songs. Um, yeah, it was, it was lovely, you know, and um, it was um, those, like those tours for us too, it wasn't so much that we were with them, although obviously it was, it was, they were great company and they were great hosts and, um, you know, were encouraging to us and obviously were grateful and helped, they helped our career a lot. But, um, you know, it was, just, it was just a different reality for us as like longtime friends being together, experiencing that together. Um, and I think really that's what um, that that's what was uh, valuable about the experience. The fact that we were we were experiencing the, those gigs and those shows and that tour together, um, you know, kind of seeing that experience reflect back um, to each other through each other in terms of the way we played those shows, in terms of you know how it affected our songwriting and just our nature as performers, I think. So, um, at the end of the day, it was, you know, you've done a show and, you know, you've seen and experienced all of these things, but really, and I think probably the hip guys would tell you the same thing. It's, it's that time kind of when you're together, um, and everything has already happened and it's behind you that, you know, when you start to process it and talk about it, um, and be together in it, those are the times that you really remember the most. And, um, and that, that's probably, that's probably what I take away mostly from those experiences. The art was great. And seeing, you know, those guys do their thing every night was great. You know, I know I did it pretty well before we did those tours. So it wasn't like I got to know him, uh, well on the road. Um, but, um, yeah, time spent with him was obviously a joy. Keeping that diary, that true diary, which you kind of used as the basis for some of the, the Cold Road book, um, how, did, how did you approach that in terms of 
you know, not only a document that, you know, you're using to process these experiences, but also something that maybe you're planning to, you know, write from later. Is there, well, is there a way that you approached keeping that? Uh, well, I, I, so I wrote that, I wrote a, like I wrote a, uh, I wrote the tour diary up for the Toronto Star, um, for their, um, entertainment section. And then, so I was approached by an agent, uh, Paul Corrington's agent, who, you know, asked if I'd want to develop it into a book, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I had, I had not thought about it at all, honestly. Um, and then I thought, uh, I thought it'd be interesting, but I thought to myself, well, first of all, it probably, because I was insecure about, um, you know, the craft and, um, you know, intimidated and daunted by the prospect of having to write a book, but, but I was also, I really didn't think people would want to read 300 pages of me writing about, you know, what the catering was like backstage at the Winnipeg Arena. Um, I thought, how can I, how can I make this book a little bit more altruistic and a little less narcissistic? Because writing about oneself is such a narcissistic act on one level. Um, so that's when I decided that it would be interesting to, um, you know, fan in, um, all of the stories from all the other performers, the performers who, uh, went ahead of us uh, in the 60s and 70s. Because um, I'd met a lot of interesting musicians anyways. Um, prior to that, you know, we met a blues band in the Royal Albert Hotel in 1987 that had remarkable stories of their lives in music. And um, So I thought it would be really interesting to kind of to draw all of their stories into it to kind of, you know, um, add some meat to the book, uh, fatten it, and just also make it a little less about me and more just kind of about about the greater musical community. So um, uh, that yeah, that was, and I don't, I, I think that this that idea kind of came about. Like I think this, the the concept of the book being a tour diary with Travis Hip, which is kind of sold like that, and then I kind of developed it um, before I was meeting my editors early on about how the book might kind of happen. They were excited about that too, so we, I knew it would kind of work. Well. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me and uh, people listening, make sure you check out the West End Phoenix. I'll link uh, to it, but of course, if you search the West End Phoenix, you'll get a bunch of information about that. Uh, the latest album, uh, Rio Statics, is Here Come the Wolves, which is worth uh, listening to and has some really excellent uh, you know, material on it for sure. Uh, Bedini Bands, Motherlands, an album I really recommend as well. Um, uh, in terms of recent albums, especially. And uh, thanks again for talking to me. Um, and to everyone else, you know, thanks for listening and keep writing your own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah.